The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Pushing Back Against HCM. Can cardiac myosin inhibitors alter the disease progression and management trajectory for patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash KST 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, this nice sunny Sunday morning, uh, bright and early. I'm Melinda Sai from the Cleveland Clinic, and uh, it is indeed my true pleasure to introduce two very good friends of mine uh, who I've gotten to know well uh, in the space of HCM and cardiology uh, overall. First on my right is Dr. Neil Lakravala. Uh, he's from Brigham and Women's Hospital. Uh, he does heart failure. I believe I just heard he also does heart failure advanced mechanical support therapies. Plus, uh, he is an expert in cardiomyopathies, especially HCM. He's uh, a rising star. I think not a rising star. He's already a star. So uh, next to him is Dr. Anjali Owens uh, from University of Pennsylvania. And again, she is a heart failure transplant cardiologist, a card-carrying member of their transplant uh, faculty, but also director of their inherited cardiomyopathy program. And she is also an established star in the context of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with a lot of experience in clinical management as well as uh, trials. And I dabble a little bit in quite a few things, but HCM, and, and I'm not a heart failure doctor, so. Uh, what do we have? Uh, why are we here? Uh, first is, let's do some simple math bright and early in the morning. If the prevalence of the disease is one in 500, in the US of A, there's about six to 700,000 patients. We know of about 100,000 patients. That means there's 85% of them that are undiagnosed, underdiagnosed, or misdiagnosed. So we need to do better. Uh, we need to take the conversation, we need to take the narrative upstream to, to do a better job of recognizing these people, phenotyping, characterizing, et cetera. Especially in 2022 and beyond, with emergence of precision therapies for multiple diseases like HCM, like amyloidosis, it is like Fabre's disease. It is important to, for us to make a definitive diagnosis. Additionally, <clears throat> now, as I alluded to, with the emergence of uh, precision medical therapies uh, in various spaces, you can do offer patients choices that they never had before. The choice, especially in the context of obstructive HCM, is what? Uh, once you get to advanced level of symptoms, you get uh, referred for septal reduction therapy. The problem is there ain't enough septal reduction therapy centers around the world, especially that can provide high-value care. As defined by the, in the guidelines, what is the definition of a high-value program, experience program? Less than 0.5% mortality, in addition to all the other bells and whistles. In USA, according to published data, if you go to a less experienced center, your chance of dying with HCM intervention is one in six. One in six versus 0.5 one in about 1,600, 1,500 or so. So it is imperative that we address this, identify this, and talk about this, and figure out what we need to do, where we are, where we have come from, where we need to go. Uh, these are absolutely important discussions to have. And, and I think you know, you're going to enjoy the hour that we have in store. Uh, Dr. Lakrawala is going to talk about the all-important upstream task of identification of patients with HCM. What are the key things you need to look for? What are the rabbit holes that you need to avoid? And 
bottom line is how you're going to take care of these patients. Then Dr. Owens is going to talk about current data in the context of management of obstructive HCM. And then I will round it off by just providing some comedy value. No, uh, we'll talk about non-obstructive HCM. And I think with that in mind, five seconds to spare. Let's get the day rolling. Neil, thank you. And thank you all for coming. Thank you, Dr. Desai. Good morning, everyone. So I'll discuss the clinical assessment of a patient with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or someone who might have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So as Dr. Desai uh, mentioned, this is not a rare disease. This is a disease that we think affects up to one in 200 individuals. And back of the envelope calculations end up with 4.7 million patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, the, th this is just in children. The unexplained LVH uh, uh, data that accounts for this is where we come up with the 1 in 200 to 1 in 500 patients. This isn't restricted to the U.S. It's not restricted to the developed world. Prevalent studies throughout the world have come up with very similar figures. Part of the, the problem with recognition has to do with the different faces of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, different morphologic variants. So we can have a normal cardiac morphology as depicted here on the left of the screen. We can have concentric hypertrophy, perhaps without obstruction, what some might think of as the calling card, but not invariably present in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And there, it's a clinical assessment. <clears throat> you have to take into account the patient's natural history and other medical problems. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with obstruction, perhaps the best known version of this disorder, mid-cavitary obstruction, and then apical hypertrophic cardiomyopathy where our imaging techniques need to be carefully honed to detect the disease. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is not a disease restricted to a particular age group. From the SHARE registry, Dr. Owens, myself, and colleagues have examined the time of diagnosis across the spectrum and have found there are early peaks um, in infancy, later in adolescence, with the majority of patients diagnosed in adulthood, actually later in adulthood. Um, the genetic characteristics of these patients does vary to an extent, with sarcomere gene mutations present at different frequencies based on the age of diagnosis, but still the most common cause of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, with the majority of them related to variants in the two thick filament genes, myosin heavy chain and myosin binding protein C. <clears throat> Once you're diagnosed with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, your uh, clinical manifestations will vary over the duration that you have the disease. And if you're diagnosed early in life, that's probably why we see some of the more adverse complications in these patients while they're still young. But our patients diagnosed older will slowly and steadily accrue the same events as they age. So again, from the SHARE registry, we examined this phenomenon looking at different outcomes in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy diagnosed at either young, younger than 40, 40 to 60, or greater than 60 years of age. And of course, the older patients start to accrue events after diagnosis, and so their event rates at that point are quite low. But the curves are parallel, and we see with the overall composite incorporating both ventricular atrial arrhythmias as well as heart failure and each individual component, the longer you have disease, the more likely you are to experience an adverse event. So when do we suspect hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? There are the typical presenting symptoms, exertional dyspnea, exertional dizziness, syncope, um, in particular non-neurocardiogenic syncope, angina, palpitations, um, and perhaps the most characteristic finding is how it's not characteristic. Patients have variability with respect to their symptoms. Some days they feel great, hot and humid days, not so much. The murmur of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy when secondary to outflow tract obstruction has characteristic features. It's a systolic ejection murmur that can be provoked or um, uh, augmented with different bedside maneuvers, the Valsalva maneuver, or particular standing a patient from a squatting position where the preload drops and the uh, underlying mechanism drives a higher gradient and a louder murmur. Taking a careful family history can't be undervalued, and it's an iterative process. It's not something done just once at the time of first visit, but we return to it. 
Uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, we know from studying families, is a disease inherited in an autosomal dominant fashion, transmitted from either gender parent to either gender child, with a 50% chance of inheritance. Expression um, is variable and penetrance is age dependent. Um, when taking that family history, it's important to hone in on the cause of unexpected deaths. I think most of us are well acquainted with the notion that our patients characterize every cardiovascular event in the family as a heart attack. And so um, don't stop there when someone says their family member died of a heart attack at 30. Take a more careful history and try to collect additional information if possible. Um, heart failure, of course, when culminating in transplant can be a very important suggestive clue. And as can stroke with atrial fibrillation, the most common arrhythmia in this disorder and associated with a very high risk of, uh, of stroke. So I'll transition to a case. This is a patient of mine who uh, presented at nearly 60 years of age after three years of atrial fibrillation and progressive exertional dyspnea. He was very worried about his family history. He's a family man and um, following the sudden death of his brother sought second uh, opinion for his care. In his general cardiology practice, uh, was noted to have at times an elevated blood pressure and diagnosed with hypertensive heart disease. Um, because of the, the severity of his symptoms, his cardiologist felt like a, a heart failure consultation would be valued even though his um, ejection fraction was normal. So he comes to your clinic um, and you note that the hypertension history is probably unsubstantiated. This is one of those figments of the electronic medical record that's, that are propagated forward. Um, and you, you do elicit the same family history of a brother who died suddenly in, in, a, in a manner that suggests sudden cardiac death, um, and that his sister and his mother both have had heart failure. So wh what, what, does, what do the guidelines tell us about diagnosing hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? So we should suspect it based on symptoms. This patient certainly has suggestive symptoms with exertional dyspnea. His family history is suggestive. Has he had a cardiac event? Well, he's had atrial fibrillation. Um, his physical exam we'll talk about a little bit more, but carefully we want to assess for a systolic murmur. And then look at our widely available cardiac diagnostics, electrocardiography and echocardiography. When taking that um, first intake visit, we want to be very um, uh, reg regimented about our family history and take a three-generation family history. Our exam should be honed for this disorder. Um, of course, we'll get a 12-lead ECG and echo, and that echo should include provocative maneuvers per the guidelines. And a very low threshold for exercise uh, echocardiography as um, a, non, a not small number of patients with provoked outflow tract obstruction are only provoked with exercise. If echo images are inconclusive, a cardiac MRI is advised. And genetic testing is an in increasingly important component of a diagnosis or at least an evaluation for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So pitfalls, and I think we, we've all in this room seen these, these pitfalls. Patients who are diagnosed with one of these who indeed have underlying hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Exercise-induced asthma. This is a diagnosis that many of our young patients carry from their pediatric days. Mitral valve prolapse, which at one point was an epidemic based on, uh, on, on crude echo criteria. Of course, our patients have a systolic murmur, which changes with maneuvers, as does mitral valve prolapse. An innocent heart murmur. So this patient has a murmur. We're not sure why, but we think it's not a big deal. Um, panic attack. <clears throat> so patients can have symptoms that wax and wane and at times can be quite severe. <clears throat> when quite severe, patients can be upset. And this can be misconstrued as an anxiety event. And then syncope, and probably most importantly to, to really deep dive into that history and not fall into the trap of, of, of considering all syncopal episodes neurocardiogenic in nature. So do our, our long-standing diagnostics do a good job of diagnosing hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Can we stop at an electrocardiogram in a patient who has suggestive clinical features? And we really can't. The ECG is not, se not sensitive enough nor specific enough for diagnosing hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Of course, it can be wildly abnormal, and this is one version of some of the findings that can be seen in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patients using the 12-lead ECG. You'll see on the figure to the right, we'll have the percentage of patients exhibiting a particular abnormality 
Uh, and even the most prevalent abnormality, repolarization abnormalities, which are not that infrequent in the broader cardiology population, are present on only 61% of patients in one Mayo Clinic series. And then the frequency of these abnormalities decreases. Um, probably most important to recognize is that some of our old LVH criteria from the electrocardiogram don't do a good job at identifying hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So back to that original cartoon I showed earlier with the morphologic variants of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Those, are, um, those can be recognized with echocardiography and cardiac MRI here. We walk through different versions, including from the top left corner, um, a prominent uh, a septal uh, thickening with systolic anterior motion of the anterior mitral leaflet in SAM septal contact through non-obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy to the top right to massive hypertrophy with echo contrast um, towards the bottom, and then an apical aneurysm with cardiac MRI in the bottom right. Not everything that's LVH is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and, it, it, and this is also important to appreciate given that some of these diseases either have very distinctive natural histories we need to be ready for, and increasingly have specific therapies we should be offering our patients. This includes Fabre disease, which is an X-linked disorder. It's a syndromic condition with, a, especially in men, involvement of the, of the kidneys. Um, women um, can have prominent cutaneous and gastrointestinal involvement. <clears throat> but from merely an echocardiographic perspective can look very much like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So when should we suspect it? So some of it is symptom-based. Some of it is electrocardiography-based. Patients often have a pseudo uh, pre-excitation pattern or a delta wave, short PR interval, and these extra cardiac features listed here. Um, other metabolic cardiomyopathies such as PRKAG2 and Dannon disease also share the pre-excitation pattern of a short PR interval. And in the case of Dannon disease, there's often, especially in boys, prominent skeletal myopathy, and there may be intellectual disability. This in, in boys, due to the X-linked nature of this disorder, has a very adverse prognosis with the need for transplant often in the teenage years and is, of course, the subject of exciting gene therapy at present. Amyloid has a lot of our attention, and appropriately so, again, because there are specific therapies and because the natural history differs quite significantly. The ECG classically will have low, Q, low QRS amplitude as a way to distinguish it from diseases such as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. But we know that's not always the case, and MRI in this situation can be very um, uh, helpful to make that distinction. And Noonan syndrome, which um, shares some of the underlying mechanism of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but more frequently involves the right ventricle and has uh, characteristic systemic features. So how, what, what's an efficient way to figure out if a patient has a mimic or the real deal? And genetic testing is one way to do that. Uh, genetic testing serves several different roles in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, we can identify a, a causative sarcomere mutation in about 50% of our patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That, that prevalence varies based on our patients and their families' characteristics. So more common in young patients with septal hypertrophy, much less common in older patients with hypertension. And as noted earlier, most commonly involves mutations in the thick filament genes, MYH7 and MYBPC3. Um, multiple labs offer genetic testing for LVH and, and capture not just the genes associated with HCM, but those accounting for some of the mimics. And through testing, we can um, prioritize family evaluations, utilizing it for a cascade screening, and identify patients who can be released from follow-up. So we'll go back to this patient. This is the, the man at 57 presented with three years of atrial fibrillation and exertional dyspnea. These aren't the world's greatest echo images. This is real clinical practice. Um, he seems to have septal and, and concentric hypertrophy with a maximal wall thickness of 16 millimeters, normal cavity size, preserved systolic function, large left atrium, and no aortic valve dysfunction. There's flow acceleration in the outflow tract, but on this first echocardiogram he had, no Valsalva maneuver was uh, performed, no stress echo was performed, and there is um, a non-significant or non-clinically significant gradient. ECG shows relatively unremarkable features. So what's the most appropriate diagnosis for Eduardo at this juncture? Thank you, Neil. Uh, Anjali. Take it over. Uh, as discussed, she will uh, talk about data 
as it relates to obstructive HCM. Great, thank you so much. Um, so we left Eduardo hanging, but we'll get back to him. So we've learned increasingly uh, about the pathophysiology and the underlying disease process in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy over the last couple of decades. We know that in a healthy heart, the sarcomere, or that basic contractile unit of the heart, uses energy efficiently, which is enabling systole, but also important normal relaxation or diastole. And what we see in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, both non-obstructive and obstructive forms, is that at a very basic sarcomeric level, there are excessive actin-myosin crossbridge formation, which leads to excessive contractility or hypercontractility and abnormal relaxation. And further, in the obstructed heart, there is the outflow tract obstruction that causes excess energy utilization. So we have an inefficient um, cardiac function in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that over time leads to the changes that we see on echo with hypertrophy, with obstruction, with abnormal diastolic function. So what is our therapy currently for obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in symptomatic patients? Our guidelines last published in 2020 suggest that first-line therapy should be, importantly, to avoid medications that can exacerbate obstruction. And to that end, we often find ourselves discontinuing vasodilator agents that are typically being used to treat hypertension, like amlodipine. Uh, we discontinue high-dose diuretics. And we start as first-line therapy, beta blockers, or the non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, diltiazem or verapamil. And we usually titrate those therapies over the span of a few weeks, uh, either to symptomatic benefit or to limiting side effects. And if patients remain symptomatic after being titrated up to a maximally tolerated dose of beta blocker or calcium blocker, then we use a second-line therapy, the addition of disapyramide. And if patients remain symptomatic, class three symptoms, we proceed with a discussion about utilizing septal reduction therapy. We have two forms um, in the mainstream uh, approved therapies, which is septal myectomy or alcohol ablation. And again, we reserve those therapies for patients who have been tried on maximally tolerated medical therapy and remain one, symptomatic, and two, with a high LVOT gradient. So um, what we know is that patients who go on to need septal reduction therapy, as Dr. Desai mentioned early on, really need a specialized center that does this procedure well, that has good outcomes, that can avoid complications. Many of these patients are young patients with few comorbidities, and they really need specialized care. And optimal results um, are not always widely available, and recent data has come out to show that there is a fair discrepancy between high-volume centers that do these uh, specialized procedures very well and lower-volume centers that don't. In order to get access for our patients to these, uh, to these procedures can be difficult. Thus, there's an admit need in this community for non-invasive alternatives to septal reduction therapy. We always take this in the context of a shared decision-making conversation. The guidelines in 2020 stress this importance in HCM, that there are centers that need to work together collaboratively. So we have our community cardiologists who are not at large HCM centers, but they work in partnership, important partnership, to be the local person to sees patients. They can do some testing locally. They refer into an HCM center for higher level care including genetic counseling and testing, discussion of advanced treatment options, and then we have even fewer national comprehensive HCM centers that really are the ones that can handle the complex invasive septal reduction therapies, do heart failure and transplant, and do advanced ablations. And it's important that we all work together and that we consider the patient first. And I think that this is an approach that many of us are comfortable with and one that is very important for the patient. It's also important to take the patient's preference into consideration. And when we uh, we'll talk later about the trials, we'll see that many patients are looking for alternative pharmacologic therapies prior to proceeding with an invasive therapy. 
So the first in class agent of myosin inhibitor, cardiac myosin inhibitor, is mavacamptin. This drug targets the underlying problem with HCM. So we talked about at the level of the sarcomere, excessive actin myosin crossbridge formation, excessive contractility, abnormal relaxation, and this drug addresses that underlying problem. By stabilizing the super relaxed state of myosin, it reduces the number of cross bridges that are formed and thus reduces the myosin head availability. So you can think of this, many of you are heart failure doctors like myself, as modulating contractility. And we're comfortable modulating contractility with other medications. This is just a new way of modulating contractility. So this drug was FDA approved very recently in April of 2022 for the treatment of adults with symptomatic NYHA class two and three obstructive HCM to improve functional capacity and symptoms. And we'll talk a little bit about the data behind this approval. So the pivotal phase three trial, a randomized controlled trial, Explorer HCM, uh, studied about 250 patients, placebo versus mavicamptin. All of the patients were on background therapy with beta blockers or calcium channel blockers. And what the study found was that mavicamptin significantly reduced LVOT gradient, improved symptoms, and improved objective exercise tolerance as measured by peak VO2 compared with placebo. The safety profile was similar to what we see in placebo. And all of the patients who were in Explorer were then offered enrollment into the long-term extension trial, MAVA-LTE, and the subset of patients who came from Explorer we'll call the Explorer-LTE. So we'll show a little bit of data, which is the latest presented data, that was uh, presented by Dr. Rader at ACC as a late breaker this year, showing that longer-term extension data from that the MAVA-LTE cohort. And what you can see here with Valsalva LVOT, LVOT gradients over time is a marked decrease and sustainability in that decrease in LVOT gradient. And again, it's on the order in the 40s millimeters of mercury, so a substantial reduction in LVOT gradient, um, down below 30 in many, many patients. So a very nice improvement seen there. And importantly, consistent with this mechanism of action, we do have to look over time at left ventricular ejection fraction. And so what you can see in this uh, graph, uh, the central reads, which is a core lab read in the light blue, and then the greenish color is the local site read. And as this drug is going to be marketed and roll out into the real world, it's important to know that you can safely follow these patients by echo and by local echoes. You don't want to have to have a very high academic core lab standard for your echoes. So we saw pretty good um, correlation with the site reads being a little bit lower overall than, than the core lab read in terms of EF. And we did see a reduction in ejection fraction as expected. In the Explorer trial itself, which was about 30 weeks, we saw on average a 4% reduction in LVEF. And at week 48, week 84, a sustained reduction in the, in the range of seven to nine. In addition to seeing the effects on obstruction, we saw improvement in NYHA, NYHA functional class and reduction in biomarkers, in particular NT-proBNP and troponin. The NT-proBNP is shown here on the right, and the change in NYHA functional class on the left. And at week 48, there were approximately 67% of patients who imported improvement by at least one NYHA functional class. And you can see on the right that within four weeks of starting the drug, we see a dramatic reduction in NT-proBNP that is then sustained over time. And at 84 weeks, you know, almost in the normal range there, which is uh, pretty impressive com considering where people started. So as this, this is a first-in-class medication, the mechanism of action is novel, it's important that we have longer-term safety data. And this ongoing group in the long-term extension are being followed for five years and looking at adverse event rates and safety. So overall, 77% of patients remained on study treatment. 11% of patients had a temporary treatment interruption 
per guideline protocol because they met greater than or equal to one of the qualifying events. So 3% of patients had a temporary interruption due to a QTC interval change. 4% of patients had a temporary interruption due to a MAVA concentration greater than 1,000. And most importantly, 5% of patients had a temporary discontinuation because their EF dropped to less than 50%. And of those 12 events, um, only two were considered an adverse event. Many patients were asymptomatic, but noted on safety echo. Um, And seven patients resumed Mavicamptin treatment. This is consistent with what we saw in the parent study, and no new safety concerns were seen. The most common adverse events that were uh, reported are headache, dizziness, hypertension. So in conclusion, treatment with Mavicantin showed clinically important improvements in LVOT gradient, NYHA class, NT-pro BNP levels at beyond 40 weeks in patients with obstructive HCM, consistent with the parent study, and no new safety signals were observed, noting that we have to be careful to watch for the ejection fraction. Again, we're modulating contractility. You can think of it as a continuum. You're looking for that sweet spot where you've gotten reduction in hypercontractility, normalization or improvement in relaxation, but you don't want to cross over into hypocontractility. And if you do, the, the uh, if agent is reversible and you temporarily discontinue, restart at a lower dose. So the latest data presented by my partner, Dr. Desai, um, also this earlier this year and published this summer, is the Valor HCM study. The Valor study was designed to see whether Mavicamptin can offer an alternative to septal reduction therapy in patients who have severe obstructive HCM despite maximal medical therapy. And we'll talk a little bit about how this population differed from the Pivotal Explorer trial. So about 100 patients were um, randomized into this trial in a pandemic. Kudos to Dr. Desai for getting it done. Um, And we tested various doses of Mavicamptin, as you can see, with up titration. Importantly, in this study, no longer titration by PK value or concentration of Mavicamptin, but rather by echo alone, which makes that leap toward what we expect to do in the real world. And the primary endpoint was really a composite of the patient's decision to proceed with septal reduction therapy or to continue to be eligible for septal reduction therapy. So an interesting primary endpoint there. And several uh, secondary endpoints which are listed here, including the change in gradient, the improvement of NYHA, KCCQ scores, and change in biomarkers. And what we saw in Valor is that it met all of the endpoints, both the primary and secondary endpoints. Here's the baseline data for the group. So a middle-aged cohort, equal uh, males and females. An important distinction from Explorer is that this was a much thicker group of patients with over 90% being class three or higher, as opposed to Explorer, where three quarters of the patients were NYHX class two. So this is a thicker group. They were on good background medical therapy. There were 30% of patients in Valor who were on combination medical therapy, so beta blocker, calcium channel blocker, as opposed to Explorer, where patients were just on monotherapy with either a beta blocker or a calcium blocker. So again, reflecting the sicker nature of the patients. Also importantly, this was the first trial that we saw where we included patients with disopyramide. So 20% of this cohort were also treated with disopyramide. So AV nodal blocker plus disopyramide and then the addition of a cardiac myosin inhibitor. And as I alluded to in the beginning, patients want an alternative to invasive septal reduction therapy with 95% of patients choosing to continue into the crossover part of the trial where they got open-label Mavicamptin and then on into the long-term extension. And the primary endpoint is listed at the bottom with 18% of patients in the Mavicamptin group versus 77% of patients in the placebo remaining eligible for SRT. 
What we saw in terms of the uh, NYHA class, which you can see pictured on the right, is that many, many patients, the vast majority, had an improvement in their NYHA functional class on mavicamptin as opposed to placebo. In terms of adverse events, there were two patients in the mavicamptin group who had a transient reduction of LVEF to less than 50%, requiring, again, temporary discontinuation and then being able to restart the drug. There were no permanent discontinuations for an LVEF less than 30%, which was a pre-specified guideline. Um, and you can see on the right, the left ventricular ejection fraction decrease was similar to what we saw on Explore, with about a 4% decrease in left ventricular ejection fraction, remaining, importantly, well above that threshold, an aggregate of 50%. So most patients were still in the, in the high 60s. So back to Eduardo. And I don't know that we ever gave you the answer to Eduardo, but the answer was to do that exercise provocation to really see if there is obstruction. When you don't see obstruction at rest, but you have the suggestion of a flow acceleration in the LVOT, it's critically important to exercise these patients or do a provocable maneuver such as the Valsalva. And in this patient, the Valsalva gradient increased to 60, um, suggesting that his diagnosis is obstructive HCM. And then you can think about what you would offer, her, offer him in terms of therapy. I think this is still an open question and that one will hopefully answer with more data. Um, so layered in here is where will the CMIs fit into the management of obstructive HCM? And we know that the first-line therapies, beta blockers and calcium blockers, if you extrapolate from the Explorer data, then that would be a reasonable place to offer add-on therapy with a cardiac myosin inhibitor based on the Explorer data. And then further on down the line in terms of advanced therapies, if you have a patient who is considering septal reduction therapy, as all of the patients were in Valor, all of them were actively considering SRT, that it would be a reasonable place to ask if they would like to consider an add-on therapy with Mavicamptin as they're considering SRT. So in the last few minutes, we'll discuss the next in-class agent, which is afikamptin. Again, it's, going to, it's also a cardiac myosin inhibitor, a reversible agent, works slightly differently um, on a mechanistic level than mavicamptin, but also results, results in less actin-myosin uh, cross-bridge formation. So the latest data from Afikampton is the Redwood HCM trial, which is a dose-finding phase two trial, looking at different cohorts based on dose, and also cohort three, which is an open-label cohort that included patients with disopyramine. And you can see a similar patient population to what we saw, um, sort of a hybrid between the Explorer and Valor population. And in the phase two study, what we saw was very similar to what we've seen with Mavicantin, which is a substantial reduction in LVOT gradient and a uh, mechanistically based small reduction in left ventricular ejection fraction. We also saw with uh, responder analyses, very nice hemodynamic response, particularly with the higher dose afikamptin, which is cohort two, with 92% of patients having what we define as a complete response. That means your LVOT gradient went less than 30, Valsalva gradient less than 50, so below the threshold for saying that you are obstructed. Again, with a very nice improvement, um, dose-based in NYHA functional class. Similarly, we saw improvement in biomarkers, both troponin and NT-proBNP with this agent. So Mavicantin was approved by the FDA only through a REMS program, so risk evaluation mitigation program. Prescribers have to complete REMS certification. Patients have to enroll in the program and agree to comply with monitoring, and pharmacists must also complete certification. Dosing is initiated at 5 milligrams a day, as long as the ejection fraction is greater than 55%. And we monitor for reduction of left ventricular ejection fraction. So that's the answer to the question. You do safety monitoring for a drop in EF or symptoms of heart failure. So don't, don't let your eyes glaze over when you see this titration scheme, as many people do when you first see it. But you start at five milligrams, and it's a slow titration process 
over 12 weeks, and you're guided by the reduction in LVOT gradient and also by the ejection fraction in the later weeks in terms of whether you stay on 5 milligrams or you down titrate to 2.5 milligrams. And importantly, we do not increase the dose until after 12 weeks. And after 12 weeks, you can up titrate. If at any point in the titration scheme you get an ejection fraction less than 50, then you interrupt therapy, you bring the patient back for an echo in four weeks, wait for the EF to return back up to above 50, and then restart at a lower dose. It's important to monitor for drug-drug interactions, which can happen because of the cytochrome P450 system and the way that mavicamptin is metabolized. A big one is a proton pump inhibitor. And there's additional information uh, about prescribing. If you're interested, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Desai for uh, non-obstructive. Thank you. Thank you again, and good morning. Uh, so we have talked about obstructive. We've talked about diagnosis. Is there a role of CMIs in non-obstructive disease, HCM, and beyond? So uh, what is the common between HCM and HFPEF. So the, you know, obstruction in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, yes, that causes a lot of symptoms. But what else is going on in the milieu of a hypertrophied heart? There is issues with microvascular ischemia slash injury due to coronary arterial dysplasia. Obviously, there's LVH, which is an energy inefficient state. Uh, there is altered energetics, which create a pro-fibrotic, pro-hypertrophic milieu. Uh, all this results in impaired relaxation, myocardial fibrosis, uh, etc. What are the downstream clinical ramifications of this? Uh, there is impaired, inefficient contractility, increased preload, LA volume uh, increase, and also concomitant AFib. Uh, risk. So bottom line is, even without obstruction, we are in a energy inefficient and, and just a bad state of affairs. To, and the, about 3 to 5% patients with non-obstructive HCM in an overall HCM population uh, result end up being in a burnt out HCM phase. So what do the guidelines say in terms of treatment of symptomatic non-obstructive HCM? If your EF is more than 50%, beta blockers or diltiazem or verapamil. If, if things continue to progress, you are behind the eight ball. Obviously, you talk about diuretics. You are now managing heart failure. In some selected patients, you talk about debulking apical myectomy. What does that entail? It removes a chunk of the muscle from deep down inside the LV to increase the stroke volume and uh, basically help improve symptoms. And if you are that unlucky soul, you get to refer to Dr. Owens or Dr. Lakravala for a heart transplant. What do you deal, how do you deal with folks that are less than 50% EF? That now falls clearly in their league. Uh, basically, guideline-directed medical therapy for, for heart failure guidelines. It is absolutely crucial to realize if your HCM patient enters into the slippery slope of burnt-out HCM, please stop their verapamil, diso, diltiazem. ICD thresholds, unlike other diseases here, is about 50%. Important to remember that. And then, obviously, CRT and heart transplant needs to be thought of. What's next? Uh, can we talk the CMI language, cardiac myosin inhibitor language, in this context? Where's the data? In the context of non-obstructive HCM, there has been, we will talk about a phase two study, the Maverick HCM in, in the setting of Mavacampton, phase two dose-finding randomized trial, which showed a significant reduction in biomarkers, anti-pro-BNP specifically. In about 12.5% patients, there was a reversible reduction in EF to less than 45%. Remember, 
A drop in EF does not automatically mean heart failure, development of heart failure, but this is something that needs to be kept in mind. Redwood HCM using Affic Hampton, cohort four is an open label uh, trial in non-obstructive HCM, which is currently enrolling, and be on the lookout for the news regarding the initiation of a trial, a phase three randomized control trial in the context of Mavic Hampton and non-obstructive HCM. What about HEFPEF? Embark HEFPEF, this is a Mavic Hampton driven trial, phase two open label. It's again a proof of concept in the, con in the setting of HEFPEF and patients who have elevated troponin as well as uh, anti-pro BNP. Study design of this Maverick HCM phase two study, uh, non-obstructive, uh, standard age 54, about 60% women, uh, patients NYHA class two and three, and elevated BNP, non-obstructive, uh, no prolonged QT interval. And basically, it was given for 16 weeks with eight, eight weeks washout, PK, this was done using pharmacokinetic. Remember, here you don't have the gradient to guide you by. So here, in this study, uh, pharmacokinetic adjustment was performed in one group. Uh, with, uh, the other group, the do PK adjustment dose was around 200, and there was obviously placebo. The endpoint was safety and tolerability at 16 weeks and initiated doses at five milligrams and then adjusted up titrate or down titrate ranging from two and a half to 15 milligrams depending upon pharmacokinetic uh, if it adjusted dose target. It showed a significant reduction in anti-proBNP and cardiac troponin uh, while on therapy. Uh, patients with more severe non-obstructive HCM, including the E or E prime elevation and elevated troponin I also showed improvements in peak VO2 and functional class, but not really uh, patients with se less severe HCM. This was a small phase two study. More data will be coming in the larger uh, phase three randomized study. Obviously well-tolerated, we always have to worry about these things. Uh, and the group one patients had 68 patients with the, uh, adverse effects, 73 in group two, and pool was 139 adverse events. Uh, versus placebo, there were 41. The table on the right, EF changed from baseline about 2%, 2 to 3% in group one, group two, 5.6%, and in placebo, it was similar to group one. Five patients had discontinuation of Mavacampton transiently, but recovered EF uh, and have had no long-term side effects. So this is something, this is a myosin inhibitor. So EF drop is gonna be something you're gonna have to look out for, but as best as we can tell, pretty much this is a transient effect. What can we do? First step is be diligent about confirming that this is indeed non-obstructive. Treat with beta blockers. AFib is a bad actor. You have to recognize that and get proactive about that. Treat other arrhythmias. In some selected cases, you progress to L myectomy, LVAD, uh, or transplantation. Uh, <clears throat> so bottom line is right now, we definitely have more we can do, hopefully, in this population. Let's talk about this case. Joshua is a 19-year-old male, presents with dyspnea on exertion, which is progressively worsening, mild chest pain, palpitations, no syncope, no family history of sudden cardiac death. ECG reveals deep inverted T waves. Holter had runs of non-sustained VT with fast cycle length. CPET preserved peak VO2 around 32. Apical variant HCM with no outflow tract obstruction. CMR confirms apical HCM, but patient has an apical aneurysm. Scar burden was about 16%. EF is preserved. BNP is elevated. Treated with beta blocker, metoprolol. What else would you do in this human being? What would I do? I'd place an ICD or at least strongly recommend placing an ICD. He has high scar burden, non-sustained VT, and apical aneurysms. That's three risk factors according to ACCAHA. 
So, he's not yet a heart transplant candidate. CMI, yes, his ejection fraction is improved, so you can potentially talk about an upcoming trial. But as of right now, he does not meet criteria for uh, Iosmava, Mavacampton, et cetera. So we are going to take some questions that we've gotten. Uh, one question was, <clears throat> would you treat, so we have heart failure doctors, so would you treat concomitant TTR amyloid and uh, non-obstructive or an obstructive HCM with cardiac myosin inhibitor. So, Anjali. <laughs> From a heart failure audience, that question. Uh, that's an excellent question. I think I would probably go for treatment, targeted treatment of TTR amyloid, if the patient's a candidate for that, prior to treating, um, you know, treating the obstruction with a beta blocker if they tolerate it, but obviously that's a dicey proposition in an amyloid patient. So I would usually go with treatment as targeted as you can get it to the specific etiology of the cardiomyopathy that you've diagnosed. Neil, what do you think? No, I agree fully, and I think <clears throat> not, not that we always have to be purists, but all of the trials of myosin inhibitors have expressly excluded patients with amyloidosis, and I think it's fair to speculate that this could have unintended adverse consequences for these patients. One other question that was asked was, and I can take that one, is what is the workup protocol for apical HCM and what is the protocol to rule out phenocopy? So first and foremost, obviously, is clinical assessment. Second is good quality echo. If you are dealing with... Our sonographers are strongly instructed. If you have apical variant HCM, make sure you show a good four chamber. Make sure, if in doubt, or generally first time echo, give contrast because apical aneurysm can be hidden. And if you don't look for it, you are not going to find, find it. And obviously, in 2022, cardiac MRI with its multiparametric imaging is strongly recommended when in doubt, to look for phenocopies, uh, especially something like amyloidosis. Fabrase has a typical pattern of infralateral scar, uh, but along with a classic clinical history. And I think, when in doubt, multimodality imaging. The other thing I forgot is strain echocardiography is also very helpful in the context. You know, amyloid has the apical sparing pattern. The Apical variant HCM has a wall, has low strain in the apex. So synthesizing data from a multimodality imaging would be important. Uh, there was a question asked. I think the answer is self-explanatory. Can you explain a bit more about how to titrate those with non-obstructive HCM in the context of CMI? Doctor, we don't because we don't start CMI uh, on non-obstructive HCM patients. One other question. Why there is 7% AFib in Mavacampton group compared to placebo? In such cases, do you add additional antiarrhythmic? Neil. So I, I think we don't know whether Mavacampton increases the risk of atrial fibrillation. There's not been a significant risk. I think antiarrhythmics for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy targeted towards atrial fibrillation Probably the most experiences with either disopyramide using its antiarrhythmic properties or with amiodarone. So it will always reasonable, but would require hospitalization, of course, and monitoring for QT prolongation. We have had some success with using dofetilide and sotolol as well in patients with HCM, so I think the, those would be other alternative agents. Yes, and so the longer-term data on arrhythmias is being looked at in the long-term extension. What we have seen structurally is improvement in left atrial volumes and improvement in E over E prime and diastolic filling parameters, which may lead over the long term to hopefully reduce atrial fibrillation. So there's no signal that it increases AFib, but that data is still needs to be looked at in terms of long-term arrhythmia risk. Um, question about the REMS program and the follow-up. Since uh, you know this requires patient compliance, how does that factor into your decision-making process? And then number two, uh, in the first year, they need six echoes. Six echoes. Um, how do you foresee that to be, if, it, if at all, an issue with payers? 
Do you want me to take it? I'm, uh, I'm happy to. No, so it, uh, compliance factors highly in patient selection, and the patient has to agree to and sign on to the REMS program. So we say up front, you're going to have at least six or seven echoes this year. Are you able to do this? So that's number one. Number two, the payers who are paying for the drug are paying for the echoes. So we have not had trouble with that. Once the payer agrees that they're going to pay for the drug, they pay for the echoes as mandated by the FDA. So we haven't had trouble with that. Um, there are copay assistance programs because there are copays for the echoes as well as the drug. And so um, it, Encouraging your patient to sign up for assistance program has really helped us to be able to successfully start the drug. And, and you know, the, it's like everything else in life. A frank conversation of expectations is it's what it is. I mean, and once it is that two-way conversation is had, generally p- people are compliant. I mean, it's, it's sort of like, you know, Sir, you're going to have a heart transplant. Uh, if you don't show up for biopsy, you are going to probably check out sooner than you bargained for out of this planet. So, you know, I, I'm not aware of how many people don't show up for their regularly scheduled biopsies. So, you know, it is, it is a simple analogy. Yes? There were two patients that had the LVF drop in a Valor, and they were able to resume at a lower dose. I was wondering, do we have um, information for prognostic significance for these patients, so, or do you, do you know of any? Yeah. So one of them was my patient. Actually, I saw him Thursday. Uh, he's doing great. Uh, so the EF drop, as best as we can tell, is transient. You stop it. It washes out. It recovers, uh, and they get along their merry way. Uh, if, this, if the EF drop is less than 30%, then you have to permanently discontinue. The drug has not been around long enough. We have a fair bit of experience with the LTE data. All, many patients are reaching four or five years. Uh, but I think we, we are getting ahead of ourselves. We definitely need time to ascertain long-term prognosis. But as of right now, it's a transient uh, situation. Thank you. I'm confused about your answer. When you, sorry for that. Um, when you mentioned no mavacamptin um, uh, for uh, non-obstructive, that's what your first answer when we, we got to the panel. But you showed in the Maverick uh, HCM. Is it just under trial protocol? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Maverick was a phase two trial. Okay. There is going to be a phase three trial. Then we are going to see what the results show, and then we will talk about So it's about not for it. us. It's only for the trial. For so far? Only for, yes. Okay. But the question of titration in non-obstructive HCM is a good one because we don't yet have a great way of titrating in non-obstructive HCM because we're missing that biomarker of the gradient to use for titration. But in Maverick protocol, you follow the same, correct? Maverick protocol, you start five and you Yeah. But it's a trial protocol. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Yes, sir. I have started on a couple of patients on this drug, and one had a mark, remarkable response. Uh, systolic gradient, LVOT gradient dropped from 160 to 20 in two months. But another patient who had undergone uh, alcohol septal ablation before, which didn't work very well, she, her gradient hasn't changed after one month. So, uh, of course, I'm going to continue the drug for a longer time, but if, that, if after three or four months there's no significant difference, would you stop the drug? So uh, there's a lot to be unpacked in this because, I, w- I mean, you know, what would I do for this patient? I really want to look at the echo uh, myself, uh, echo and advanced imaging C is this really HCM? Are we dealing with something else? Is there a papillary muscle or a mitral valve problem that is driving the outflow tract obstruction as opposed to a muscle thickness problem? So I, I, I would, I mean, you know, I would, first of all, I would not stop at one month. Uh, but if you are not seeing any change in any movement in the ejection, uh, in the gradients, then you may want to 
relook at S2. Is this a mechanical problem? I think that's how I would handle it. Yeah, well, no, I, I agree. Let's, uh, for the sake of argument, let, let's say you have looked at it and verified it is true. In this case, I believe it is true, uh, HCM, because she has had a long history. And the reason the septal ablation didn't work was because the septal perforator was uh, a little bit uh, uh, more in the mid-septum instead of uh, basal septum. So it really didn't hit the target. Yeah, it, it may just be a dose-dependent problem right now. We have very conservative REMS dosing, and we know from Valor that with that second titration up, there's a significant further reduction in gradient, and we've saw, seen this in LTE that some patients don't respond to the first dose, and you're going to have to wait till 12 weeks, right, to make the first dose up, and you may have to make another one up. So I, I would say at least get, get an effect, and so a few dose-up titrations are in order. Absolutely. And the vast majority of people ended up somewhere between 5 and 10 milligrams, so about 8 milligrams. So you just may be dealing with someone who needs a little more, and it's a long half-life drug. So go slow and get them to the right dose. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. I think we are going to end the session. I would sincerely like to thank my friends and colleagues for doing the wonderful presentation and all of you for attending uh, in person as well as virtual. Thank you so much. Have a nice rest of the day. This activity is certified by the Heart Failure Society of America. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash KST 860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb.